What's your name? My name's Arthur. Well, there's something special about you, Arthur, I can tell. Where are you from? I live right here in the city with my mother. She says I was put here to spread joy and laughter. Oh, welcome back to Infant Nursery Hour. You want someone to preach to? With your host, Glenn Osler. You want religion, do you? It's sharing time. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. Yeah, you can buy anything in this world. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, because Anakin was like the golden child. He was like yeah. this Lucifer, this awesome person. At least that's what they said. The one that that I felt like was when Joker finally took that step was when he started to figure out what was going on with him. You don't listen to you. So, so Joker... What are the first two letters in Joker? J and O, like Joe, Joseph Smith. Oh, I thought you were gonna say Job. No, this is the, well. <laughs> Job was al- uh, Joseph Smith was almost. He wasn't quite yet as Job. We we read that in the the, the DNC, but he was close. <laughs> he, yeah. was close. He, was close. <laughs> he was close. He just asked the same questions every week. How's your job? Okay, so let let's let me continue with this little thought experiment. So, would you consider Joseph Smith uh, a diagnosable psychopath? Are you having any negative thoughts? He shot somebody. One of the one of the people who was. But it wasn't a talk show host for sure. No, but that but uh, but his name was Murray. <laughs> Mur- Murray the mobocrat. You don't remember the story <laughs> the of the Murray the mobocrat. All I have are negative thoughts. Creation of Sidious or Plagueis, or you know, is that so how I don't, the connection I, worked? I can't remember. Well, Plagueis, Darth. <laughs> okay, you really are bringing out my energy, <laughs> This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. You totally taking the bait. <laughs> Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. This is episode 597, where we talk about the recent movie Joker, and of course its obvious connections to Mormonism, with myself and my good infant buddy, Tom Perry. And if you don't want to hear spoilers, we're we're just going to go into spoilers um, in our discussion about it. But, you know, have you ever thought about the connection between Joker and the Mormon Church, because there is one, I promise, and you're going to find out all about it on today's just fun little nerdy, geeky pop culture. I mean, Tom really brings out the geek in me, and uh, especially around Star Wars. So anyway, enjoy the conversation. Thanks for supporting Infants on Thrones. Now let's get our collective geek on. So Glenn, nerd yeah. Glenn, are you excited for the nerd. new Star? Excited for the new Star Wars movie? I yeah, I'm I, only only because J.J. Abrams doing it, and he said that he wants to have it be like a bookend to all nine of them, you know. So even the the three prequels and that, and so I'm curious to see how he does that. But I but I kind of I kind of like the idea of coming full circle to Palpatine and like what the Emperor. So I'm curious to see. I'm curious to see what they do with it. Like I'm not like super geeked out, excited, but I'm more excited than I would have been if it wasn't that. 
they're not going to resurrect the the guy, and are they? Who knows, man? Yeah, who, who knows? knows that he's in the trailers? Well, his voice is, yeah, right. Well, but then there's that that one where like Ray's standing in front of him, and you can see kind of from behind the throne stuff. I it guess I didn't like. look. I didn't look that close. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I, I just remember there's a part where Ray is like fighting with uh, Vader's son. That's not, not Vader's not son, Vader's dude. Son. Va- it's his Vader's nephew. nephew. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm no, it's his grandson. It's his grandson. grandson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's his grandson. Yeah. Well, so I've I've read Star Wars. In, I listened to audiobooks of Star Wars audiobooks, and and I listened to one about Palpatine, and it was interesting to get more about who he is and is what that, his background is. This is this one Plagueis. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, that, I've, that, I, I've read that one. Yeah. Oh, I read the Thrawn one. The Thrawn ones are cool, man. Um, oh, I haven't done the Thrawn ones. Yeah, like like the recent ones, like the the mm-hmm. the earlier ones I read on my mission, like the the trilogy that Timothy Zahn did. Yeah, I remember those. Those were fun. I yeah. I enjoyed those. Yeah, but um, but yeah, I I like this idea of um that 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 I've seen speculated that Palpatine when he was trying to figure out how to like overcome death. He also mm-hmm. got greedy and he wanted to create life. And so um, Anakin was a force creation of Sidious or Plagueis or, you know. Is that so how I don't, the connection I, worked? I can't remember. Well, Plagueis, Darth... <laughs> Okay, you really are bringing out my energy. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. You totally taking the bait. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so the way that I remember it was that Darth Plagueis was the one that had conquered death, and then Sidious um, betrayed him. Wait, wait, wait. Plagueis didn't conquer death. That's what he was. That's what his goal was. And he and Plagueis was also uh, Palpatine's master. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I thought I thought that he actually had that he had learned really? secrets, and then he divulged the secrets to Sidious, who was Palpatine. Was that then, specifically defined? Because I thought that's maybe it was implied. I th- I thought in in the one of the prequels where he's telling the story, probably Revenge of the Sith, where they're at like this weird opera and he's telling the story. That was probably like my favorite sequence of all three of those. Oh really? Yeah. That's when where. That's where. Story about. If I remember right, isn't that where uh, Palpatine is telling Anakin that you can save your wife? Yeah. Because she was he he saw in the future that she was going to die or something like that. So I'm, I'm I mean we've been doing this for a long time, Tom. I probably told you before <laughs> that when when I was like when I had gotten off my mission at BYU, I took an, an English class that. Um, we read Milton's Paradise Lost and Paradise Lost is really was really really interesting and it was interesting to have it at BYU where we've got our pre-existence story because all of the Mormon stuff gets superimposed over John Milton's Paradise Lost sure um, but I had been so interested in this idea of like the son of the morning Lucifer the one who was second only to Jesus that mm-hmm. was just the golden child everybody loves him but he turns to evil why what was it and so I, I started writing a story. I wrote about 90 pages of it. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, it was basically um, that um, he, he saw that if people were able to make choices, that there would be people who would do shitty things to other people. You know, if, if they had their memory wiped through the veil of forgetfulness. Mm-hmm. And so 
um, his proposal was that uh, God not do the veil of forgetfulness, let everybody come into mortality, remembering the preexistence, just so that everybody would be protected. And so, so really his fall was because of love. He was trying to protect people. And so I was really interested to see when the prequels came out, how they did this fall story where, you know, cause Anakin was like the golden child. He was like yeah, this yeah. Lucifer, this awesome person. At least that's what they said. Then they got this surly actors that just are brats. And you don't give a <laughs> shit about them. <laughs> but I was really excited to see the, the, the fall. And I wanted to see the, the, the transition and, yeah, I didn't really get it the, the way my imagination wanted it. But. Okay, but what about the connection where, and, and I, this was an issue that I raised, because one of my closest friends is a Star Wars nut too. He drags yeah. me to all the stuff. Yeah. And the whole idea that Anakin essentially doesn't have any parents. Well, yeah, he, that's what I was trying to get to before when we got sidetracked. That, oh, okay. that, that Darth Sidious is actually the one who created... Um, the, the he manipulated the midi chlorians <laughs> to uh, to spawn life in the womb of whatever Anakin's mom was was it like Shmi or something like that no that was the that was Captain Hook's assistant something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a weird one to mix up yeah but her name was something like Shmi um, she was on Tatooine though right that's yeah. where she lived yeah yeah. I hated the way that they did the prequels and they told that story. Really? I didn't, I didn't need to see like a four-year-old Anakin who could like was really awesome at pod racing. You could just get rid of that whole movie. Start where he's <laughs> awesome. Start where he just kicks ass. And the first movie should have been where he just is the hero of the galaxy. And then the second movie is when you start putting in the little seed of turning, like whatever it is that makes him turn. He has to make a choice. What is he going to do? And then the third one is where he goes full on badass and you get to see more of Darth Vader, like really come to life. And well, that's, that's how I would have done it. Badass as in like full on bad. Right. right? Yeah. 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 You know, like the, the stories that you heard Ben Kenobi tell Luke about how he hunted down all of the Jedi. We never saw that. It was, it was, uh, uh, execute order 67 or whatever it was, which is stupid. You have these stupid <laughs> stormtroopers do it. Man. Why, why did you get me on a star Wars? That was Monday night football. No, Monday because night football we're supposed hype? to talk. We're supposed to talk about Joker. So I wanted to get your nerd going to oh. pave the way for my nerd. Right. Well, I, I've got, I've got some, I've got some fun little, uh, Twist coming up, I think, with uh, with Joker. But um, ooh, I'm yeah. anxious. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, go ahead. what'd you think, man? Because so I saw it. I saw it like the weekend it came out. I saw it with my daughter, and um, then I went to see it again um, with my girlfriend and her kids, and we we left midway through just cuz she's super sensitive to things and it was really really dark and i could uh, i could tell it's her, very dark yeah like there's going to be some things coming up that are going to be really disturbing to her and she wasn't <laughs> enjoying it so i'm like let's go sit outside and we'll let your kids enjoy it so sure. i've seen it one one and a half times <laughs> yeah okay so um if you were to just to take under account the first time what would you give it as a bob's rating oh well i don't do bob's five point scale you know like oh, bob's okay. pseudo five point scales because it's, why, why do a five point scale when you're doing integers like it, it's a 4.5 <laughs> just call it a nine just call it a nine it doesn't have to be four point i know he, bob would have his reasons why he does it but um yeah so i did this with my daughter after we saw it and i gave it a 10 
a 10 out of 10. Yeah. But I'm wow. easy, man. I was, I was so, I was so impressed and so moved by his performance, by the overall message of the movie. Um, I, the pacing, the fact that it was a DC movie that I really enjoyed, you know, <laughs> finally, <laughs> so, right. <laughs> yeah. I thought Wonder Woman was, was good. I like, I enjoyed Wonder Woman. Yeah. Wonder Woman was good. Yeah. 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 But uh, how about you, Tom? What did you give it? I gave, I, well, I texted you. I think I gave it an yeah. 8.5 or a 9. Yeah. I, I want to give it a 10. In fact, I, I plan on seeing it again. I'm probably just going to buy it when it comes out. Yeah. Even, even though when I was done, I actually was thinking about, like, I don't think I could watch this movie again. Right. It's pretty it was, it was, it was It was hard to watch the second time because I, I knew what was going to happen. Yeah. I wasn't as intrigued to oh, what's going to happen that kind of, like, so yeah, it, it wasn't as enjoyable the second time. And I also went in and I, and I watched the, the Joaquin Phoenix, uh, David Letterman, the infamous interview oh, where he came yeah. out, you know, and he was like punking him. Yeah. He was playing a sketch or a part or something like that. Yeah. They, 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 they made, he and Casey Affleck made a movie called I'm still here where, where they wanted to like mock reality TV, you know, the idea yeah. of reality and celebrity and stuff. And, it's an interesting idea, but it was, it was disturbing to me. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I have to join the bandwagon that Joaquin Phoenix just was incredible. I mean, oh, yeah. I, I think as far as actors go, he's in the upper echelon for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to think of a movie that I've seen him in where I've not, where I thought, nah, he didn't do very good in that. I think he's yeah. been stellar in everything. Yeah. 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 So he's even in parenthood. When he's just a little kid, I don't remember Parenthood. Yeah, it was Steve Steve Martin and oh. uh, Keanu Reeves. Oh wow! I, I, yeah, I have no memory Rick of that. Rick Moranis. <laughs> I just remember one of the earlier ones that I remember him in was The Village. Uh, M Night Shyamalan. Mm. Oh no! Wait, not The Village. You're thinking Signs. No, he's I'm in The Village too. Is he in Signs? Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, yeah, with with Mel I, Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix. Is he? He's, yeah, he's the one that swings the baseball bat, right? Am I remembering that? Oh I my gosh, it. hang Sign, on. <laughs> Signs was a movie that I liked the first time I saw it, and then every uh -huh. time I've seen it since, I haven't liked it. <laughs> I like I like Signs, yeah. uh, but... Uh, I don't think I ever saw The Village, but that, that was Bryce Dallas Howard, right? Yeah. Yeah. What, Joaquin was in that? Yeah. He was the, the boyfriend. Okay. Hang on. All right. Wow. He has a filmography. Yeah. Wow. Right. Uh, Superboy. Wow. Where, Just look up signs. Look. Mel Gibson, Joaquin Phoenix. He's second billing. He was in signs. <laughs> Using, oh, Gladiator. Remember that? Yeah. Gladiator that was, was awesome. great. That was awesome. He was, awesome. He was so good in that. Yeah, wasn't he was having sex with his sister, if I remember? No, but you were meant to be creeped out by that—that that he wanted to. Oh, that he want—he never did yeah. pull the trigger on that. No, no, this is pre-Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> the world right. wasn't ready. <laughs> Signs was two thousand two. The Village yeah. was two thousand four, and he was yeah. in the Village. Yeah, wow, he's in a lot of movies, man. That's really good. Yeah. We, we, we watched uh, Walk the Line recently, just in tribute of 
Joaquin. I haven't seen that one. Well, really? I yeah, know. Really I, I, I really need to see that one. Yeah. He's awesome in it. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, Joaquin, he really raised the bar. And I didn't know that the director, <laughs> his name is Todd Phillips. Mm-hmm. Um, he also did the uh, Hangover trilogy. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's funny, huh? It is. It, I think it's really incredible that yeah. he he's flexing his directorial muscles and doing something like this. It's just way different. And I, I saw something on YouTube where he's being interviewed and he said, yeah, I, I wanted to try something a little bit away from comedy and, and try something like this. But I think he has a really good eye for um, being a director like that because that was one of the things that I was most impressed with was the scenery um just the atmosphere because immediately i was thinking it was set in the 70s or something like that but i guess it's supposed to be set in 81 yeah technically because zorro the gay blade was on the marquee i didn't recognize i thought that was a phony movie is that oh no that's a real movie (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was one of my family's favorites when we were growing up (laughs) campy that's that's it's george hamilton and his tan plays twin brothers and one of them's gay Cool. But I mean, just everything in this movie was really well shot, really well done. I, I was drawn in for sure. I think the writing was stellar. Um, are we going to be doing spoilers? Of course. So, yeah. I mean, I I think this is probably a, just a Patreon only. I don't know that this is a big infant. So just so you're aware we're going to get into spoilers okay if you haven't seen it turn it off um i was a like i wanted to stand up and cheer when they started to tie in the the wayne family i was i didn't know about the how thomas wayne was going to be sort of a, a role in the movie yeah and the the part where he actually meets and talks to bruce and and gives him in the, the bathroom no Bruce, oh, oh, the, little oh, kid. The, the little kid yeah 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 right. oh i i got chills up and down my spine man <laughs> did you watch gotham the tv show seen, gotham no i haven't seen Gotham. okay i, I tried to watch it early on and i didn't yeah. like it so I, I think i watched like the first four or five episodes or something like that so i so i had kind of seen them do the whole bruce wayne as a little kid thing and yeah it didn't it didn't give me quite the chills that it did but but did you go into it realizing that he wasn't the real Joker? What do you mean? Okay, did you leave the movie realizing that he wasn't the real Joker? That he wasn't no. the real Joker? No, 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 no. He's not, he's not the Joker that, that fights against Batman. He's, he's, he's a Joker that inspires... Other Jokers? Yeah, so, or, or the other Joker. Um, but, but, you know, because he, he was such a... Uh, a stick that stirred that crowd, you know. It, oh, it was so iconic. yeah. I was oh, really I... hoping to see like a CGI young Heath Ledger face in the crowd, like watching him going, ah. That would have been cool. Now, yeah. I, I can see why and how that would be. Yeah. Um, but I honestly, I don't know. I, I got so excited at the end of this. I was like, well, obviously, this is, wouldn't happen, but I would be so gung ho if they did a Batman back in that time, and and take Joaquin as the Joker, and then have sort of a Batman Joker interaction movie. Who would that you would want be, to play Batman with Joaquin as the Joker? I don't want Robert Pattinson. 
I bet he'll be good. No, he won't be good. I pr- I'm, gonna, I'm calling. Uh, no, he's not going to be better than Ben Affleck. Come ben on. Affleck was okay, not great, but he was okay. Um, there's so many other people that could play Batman. Tons of good actors that could play a good Batman. So I don't know. Anyway, but if they if they were to do that, because I think I think the Joker in this movie was exceptionally good. I really liked how they started to approach nihilism with him where what was it well there's certain things in the evolution of this yeah the one that that i felt like was when joker finally took that step was when he started to figure out what was going on with him like the connection with his mom this so-called a story that she's been feeding him that Thomas Wayne is your dad. And, oh, I love that story. Yeah. I was wondering if they were going to hang in with that. I was like, oh, freaking Joker could be half brothers with Bruce Wayne. That'd be pretty <laughs> sweet. Do, do you think they fully debunked it? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because there was that picture um, that, that Thomas Wayne um, wrote on the back, like, you're so beautiful or something like that, that it, it looked like they actually had had an affair. I assume, I assume she wrote that. but maybe. Oh, really? See, I, I love that they leave those things ambiguous. So you can kind of like... It is fun. Where do you, where do you want to take it? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I think the evidence was definitely pretty pretty overwhelming that it was a fabrication. But I, I definitely loved where that was pulling me emotionally. I was like, yeah. oh, man, that's right. cool. But yeah. then when it twists where it's it's not, and then he feels severely betrayed by his mom and he was being so loyal to her. Uh, I didn't expect that he was going to kill her like that. Yeah. He was, Even though you had seen Gladiator. He, <laughs> he smothered a, fa- a parent with a pillow before. Right. Like if his sister was there, he might have had sex with her too. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but no, I, that, I think that was, it was unexpected, but it almost felt like it needed to happen in order for the Joker to start down that really dark path did you did you feel like it was a it it was an anger like an assassination killing or was it more of a mercy killing no i don't think it was a mercy killing i almost felt like he needed to do it as kind of a closing the chapter and reopening a new book Mm. that's the way i because i felt like right after that happened i got the sense that at that point joker had freedom he wasn't he didn't feel the shackles of his mom anymore he could actually yeah. be whatever he was going to be at that point yeah i i saw it that way too but i also saw it more as a mercy killing where he he recognized that his mother was also mentally ill her entire life and he's like i'm going to free you from this but i don't and, think i don't think joker really was i don't know self aware enough to know that he was mentally ill maybe he did dude the, he remember what he wrote down on that piece of paper. The worst thing about having a mental illness is everybody expects you to not, or to act like you don't. To act like to behave. Yeah, to behave like you don't. Yeah, that that's I, pretty self aware. Maybe I win. Maybe. Point me. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think that well, not, that that's what's cool too, because you get to think about these things, especially when he's talking with the social worker early on. Yeah, and he's like, "Where am I going to get my medications from?" And she's yeah. like, "I don't know. You know, they're cutting the program. I don't know what to tell you." Yeah. But it was like 
he was really scared and worried about what was going to happen. But once he kind of just leaned into that and he's like, well, let's just see where this takes me. And I think he, I don't, I don't know if he just kind of, uh, yeah. Seemed like he just enjoyed being free from that. I don't know the medications and everything else. It did. Yeah. It it did seem like as the movie went on, he got more and more comfortable with who he was, you know, like he, he started off with several delusions and he was really, really trying to fit in. He was trying to, you know, be somebody other than he was. And then when he started realizing these truths about who he actually was and he started embracing it, mm-hmm. then he kind of came to life. He was, he was a little more joy, you know, he's still crazy, but that's part mm-hmm. of who he, who he is. One of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is the standup. Uh, yeah. Scene. Yeah. It's kind of an extended scene too. So maybe it's more than one scene, but so well, yeah, the one what I'm conflating the two. So the one where I think it's before he actually stands up and he does his little act when he's out in the audience. Oh yeah. And I think that was so crucial to getting a window into his psychology his world. Yeah. Because he's, he looks so stone cold when everyone else is laughing at the jokes and then he starts laughing at the most inappropriate or awkward times. Mm-hmm. And it's it's such a contrast what's going on with him where his sense of humor <laughs> if you can even call it that yeah. it's so twisted or warped that that's why he's writing notes like okay this is what will get a reaction from the audience that's not the reaction that he finds funny that's not what's going to make him laugh yeah but uh i i really enjoyed that where it's like that's exactly what joker would be like he would laugh at the precise moments where everyone else is not laughing. (laughs) So I love that scene. And then when he gets up to do his little comedy bit, um, it was, this is such a credit to everybody that was involved in the movie because it was so awkward and uncomfortable for, even for me, like I was cringing and like, Oh, I can't believe this, but they, they held to it and it made me feel like I was watching him. When when he did his stand up. Right. Then got lampooned. That was so awkward. And yeah, yeah, it was really, really good. Really, really well done. Did you happen to notice sort of the, uh, well, I don't know if I want to call it homage or, um, or what, but sort of the, the, what I was thinking about was sort of the fight club representations where there's Mm. hallucinations or he was, um, what manufacturing things were reality in his mind. Yeah. I heard this theory was it today or yesterday. I was listening to some reviews about the movie and somebody said, well, hell now this movie, we have no idea what's actually real or not because so much of it, there's so much in the movie that was fabricated. And to me, I don't, I don't buy that at all. I think the best example of that is the girlfriend. And I think that, I think the filmmakers did a really good job of sort of dissecting that part of his story as uh, a delusion. What yeah. do you think? I, I think it was all made up. I, I think that that, yeah, <laughs> I think it was made I, up. Yeah. It's all, it's all a fabrication that existed in Todd Phillips mind and then was put down on paper. <laughs> Fair you know, enough. Fair it, enough. It, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> jackass. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> you know, 
but it's it's another one of those open-ended, ambiguous things. Like if if that's cool for you to interpret it that way, there's certainly enough material to to choose from. They, okay, they but did, in other areas. But did you like how it was portrayed? Where we were kind of getting a sense, yeah. like a first-person view, that Joker was manufacturing reality here and there. Because I think we all do, you know, I, I, and, and, and that was one of the, that, that our perspective of what's going on is so real to us and looking at it from somebody else's perspective would be completely different. And that, that happens to certain degrees. I think with everybody, when you throw in mental illness, it's even more distinct. And that, that's what I thought those scenes did a really good job of, of showing and kind of, um, by not telling the audience that you're watching a fabricated reality through his eyes and then it gets revealed later. I, I think that that made it more powerful. Mm. So I liked it. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I actually went for the ride essentially yeah. because I, I kind of bought in, there was a couple of reviewers that were saying, Oh, there's no way that uh, Joker would have went up to that girl and kissed her and she would have let him in and then the implied sexual intercourse or whatever. I didn't, I, I, that didn't take me out of it. I, I kind of thought it's, why not? And I, and I, and I just kind of ran with yeah. the idea that uh, that's what he was going with. And I even <laughs> earlier on, I kind of was thrown a little bit where we were going through the manufactured reality of, him on the TV show, mm-hmm. and then uh, what was his name? Murray. Yeah, so, yeah, the Murray Franklin character. Yeah, where there's this really, I don't know, fatherly sort of loving embrace that happens, where he's consoling him and saying, you know, yeah. I'd, I'd throw all this away if I had a son like you. Right. And it was really touching, but obviously there was several points during that sequence where I was like, okay, yeah, this is definitely a manufactured. Oh, I, I realized immediately that that one immediately. Was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I, that, I, and, and especially it, it became very clear to me that this is, this is the imaginary world he lives in where that he actually has connection with people. He's actually seen, hmm. he, he's, he's respected, you know, like the, the way that he like smiles and he just like gets filled with, you know, like, happiness and pride as people like are acknowledging him and mm-hmm. you know like Joaquin did that awesome he, yeah, did, he did he does he does that really really well the kind of he like does. vulnerable um uncertain unsure um yeah i he, he did a great job with that yeah so i knew that one i when when he kissed the the girlfriend at the door i i did think that was a little kind of jumping the shark but i but it, i didn't i didn't go oh this is a, a fake you know, reality as well. I, I didn't think that was just in his imagination. So that one, that one got me, mm. um, but I did think it, it seemed a little strange, but I thought, okay, this is just, you've seen it like you saw it in breaking bad, right? When Walt goes out and he's badass and he comes home and you know, his wife's like, who are you? Yeah. yeah. But I, I kept thinking of fight club because I thought that, that Todd Phillips did a good job of, especially when you, he lifted the veil of all that, that whole thing girlfriend thing was manufactured yeah where he kind of jumps the scenes yeah back to like the, the stand-up thing and, and the, yeah. the girlfriend apartment and all that and she's not right. any of it and it was yeah. really powerful i thought that was yeah. really well done yeah yeah power of the imagination tom <laughs> can, we can bring we create our own reality life. yeah bring people to life or not yeah, yeah. 
All right. So you ready for my like big, big interpretation where I'm going to tell you that the story of Joker is really the story of someone else. <laughs> okay. Okay. First, first yeah. I want, I want to tell you that um, just so you know, so I've got some credibility here. Um, I earned a, I earned a bachelor's in English from Brigham Young university. So like I, I majored in, in English. So, so I yeah, learned you're, you're a big deal. I get I'm, it. I'm kind of a big deal. And I, I learned how, <laughs> I learned how to see the things that are, you know, like, like they gave us so many like feminist interpret this story through feminist theory, interpret this story through Marxist theory, interpret this, you know, so they, they played all these games with it. So there was, there was one story once, um, it's this really tender, touching story of a, a, an adult man who shaves his feeble old father. And it, it goes into a lot of detail about like the, the mug that's cracked and, you know, he puts it on his face and then he brings out the blade and he just like carefully does this. And it's just like this very touching, boring story about a son <laughs> giving his dad a shave. Um, okay. And... So I wanted to have a little fun with it for the paper that we wrote. So I, I said, this story is really about euthanasia. And what actually happens is he does a mercy killing. He kills his father as he's shaving him. And, and the, the professor hated it. But I got an A because I was able to focus on the things. I'm like, you can't tell me that this isn't that. <laughs> and That's I awesome. like I I did what the English assignment was. I built my case around it. So I'm going to do something similar here with Joker. So oh, okay. So so Joker. What are the first two letters in Joker? J and O. Like Joe Joseph Smith. Oh, I thought you were going to say Job. No, this is, the, well, <laughs> Job was, al- Joseph Smith was almost, he wasn't quite yet as Job. We, we read that in the, the, the DNC, but he was close. <laughs> he yeah, was close. He was close. He was close. <laughs> he thought he was. So, yeah, he did. He did. But yeah. So, so um, the Joker is really the story of, of, uh, of Joseph Smith and, and like how Joseph Smith in his, so, so Joker in his youth, he had these horrible things happen um, of, of abuse that kind of created this mental illness in him, this uh, disassociative effect in the mind. And, uh, Joseph Smith had that when his leg surgery and he had to get like the bone marrow cut and, and he refused the alcohol. Cause yeah, he was, yeah right. Right, right. Just like Joker did. Just you'll, like you'll, I mean, you'll, you'll get that in, in, in the, the DVD extended. Like, the scenes, <laughs> yeah. where, where Joaquin's says, no. like, no, 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 no. I can't. Cause the word of wisdom someday is going to, it'll come smear along my, and, it'll smear my makeup. No, no. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and, um, yeah. And, and so like the, the made up girlfriend is like how all of Joseph's, um, marriages that weren't real. Well, you are reaching here. No, like, it's I, true. I, okay, it's, it's true. True. <laughs> true. <laughs> All right, continue. And um, yeah, how how everything that Joker did was kind of pretend. And then he he um, shot somebody at the end, and there was like this angry mob around him. And so it's the story of Joseph Smith. So did Joseph Smith shoot someone in order to get? All yeah, actually, actually, yeah, he did. He shot, he had two. He shot uh, at Carthage. He fired a couple of rounds through the door. I think he shot. I think somebody. He shot somebody. One of the one of the. P- 
people. It was, but it wasn't a talk show host for sure. Okay. No, but that, but uh, but his name was Murray. <laughs> Mur- Murray the Mobocrat. You don't remember the story <laughs> the of Murray the, Murray the Mobocrat? Yeah, he got shot by Joseph Smith. So, because because and 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 the line, which is a great line in Joker, you, you know, like what what do you get? Um, what what was it? something like? What do you get when you mix mentally ill people in a society that ignores them and pushes them away? Exactly what you deserve. Boom. And that's kind of like when Joseph had the first vision and he said, they speak of me with their hearts, but their lips are far from me. So, <laughs> so, so the people that aren't Mormon get what they deserve. Right. Uh, right. Right. Yeah, Cause they're, cause they're yeah. like Gentile. So I, so I just wanted to uh, do a little parallel mania um, and show how it's really the story of Joseph Smith. Okay, so let let's let me continue with this little thought experiment. So, would you consider Joseph Smith a, a diagnosable psychopath? Mm, you know, I I uh, recently started reading Dan Vogel's book. I think it's called Making of a Prophet. Um, I've had what? it for a long time. What Dan Vogel's make? Is that an LDS book? No, I mean it's a, he. You know who Vogel is. Yeah, he has a uh, Mormon connections. That's yeah, that's but he's he's a, he's an ex Mormon. He's not. He's not. Oh, he not, is. Yeah, this isn't. He's like a, a, but he's like a scholar, intellectual. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a historian. Yeah, and um, and he in in this book he gets into the psychology of Joseph Smith. I'm still early into it, but but he talks about the way that Joseph Smith's personality was formed by the expectations of his parents and the environment around him, and how you can see the. Or, or maybe you could see, but you could you could interpret things that are in the Book of Mormon and other things that he wrote later in his life as expressions of him as he was formed by his environment. So if he was a, what, what did you say, psychopath? Psychopath. Yeah, that you would be able to see it in his writing. So I, I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't think he's a psychopath. How, huh. how do you define psychopath again? Uh, I don't know. How do you define it? I mean, I, I think, I think Joseph Smith. You know, like there were times he did things that um, where he put himself clearly above the feelings of others. But there are also times where he went out of his way to um, empower those around him. And, you know, like, like I remember stories where he'd give somebody his horse or he'd give, you know, like he, he was very generous. You know, there were so many people who loved him and and that he loved back. Uh-uh. But, well, uh, so did I, don't, he? I don't think so. I don't see that? See, this is where it gets a little weird. There were people that definitely loved him, but that doesn't defer or distract away from the fact that he might have been a psychopath. Because we do also know he heavily manipulated things and people sure. around him. Yeah, and that's usually a trait of psychopaths. Could so. be. Dan Dan Vogel's theory is that um, he was a, what? What's the the a pious fraud? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that he really truly believed that he was called of God. Like Dan Vogel doesn't believe in any of the supernatural. He says, I don't believe that Joseph Smith was called of God, but Joseph Smith believed that he was called of God. And he believed that, that deceiving people was okay because there's stories in the old Testament, like, um, with Abraham, where they go to the, the court uh pharaoh and the pharaoh said oh is that your wife he's like oh no this is my sister 
See, it was okay for Abraham to lie and deceive. It was okay for Abraham to lie to Isaac and say, oh, we're going to go up uh, to sacrifice and not you. You know, so that, that Joseph Smith kind of followed in that tradition. And that was the, the fraud part, but he was also pious. So I don't know if that goes into your psychopath stuff or not, but did you read, did you read the Fawn Brody book? A long, long time ago. Yeah. And I remember she had some kind of theory that he like suffered from epilepsy. Was it? There was several, I think that she kind of loosely tied to him, yeah. uh, psychology or psychological disorders. I can't remember them because I read it. My, yeah, I read it a long time I, ago. I didn't find it very convincing, but that was the first book that I read that was like a, a anti-Mormon quote unquote book. Oh, really? I read the yeah. Richard Bushman one first. Then I read oh, Fawn Brody. Yeah, right? I, I, I read Fawn Brody like probably 10 years before Rough Stone Rolling came out. Ah, maybe right, five. So I don't know. Definition of psychopath, a mentally unstable person, a person having an egocentric antisocial personality marked by a lack of remorse for one actions, yeah. an absence of empathy for others and often criminal tendencies. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think he was antisocial and I don't think that he had a lack of compassion for others, but you know, he, he did. Well, only he could answer the compassion part, but I do think that, yeah, he's definitely wasn't antisocial. Yeah. That seems like it fit under the definition of sociopath rather than psychopath, I thought. But what Maybe. do I know? What yeah. do I know? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I've, I've actually wondered if Joseph Smith, if he, I think he might have uh, – maybe not might. I think he definitely was uh, a narcissist or at least had narcissism behavior or traits for sure. Mm. He had, he had a, a God complex and he wanted to be the president of the United States. He started all these, the council of 50. And I mean, who, who would have that sort of self-inflated ego to do the things that he did? So, yeah, I don't know, you know, and if, if you want to translate that into Joker, at least with the Joaquin Phoenix Joker, I don't think he was, well, it was clear that he wasn't, yeah. he wasn't trying to be a leader of any sort. Right. And, and Todd Phillips isn't Mormon, so he didn't really know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he, 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 he was, he was trying, but he didn't really know how Joseph Smith was, you know, he, he kind of missed the mark a little bit. Cause he but I think, Mormon. I think Heath Ledger's Joker probably was more of a leader. Oh, but he was, he was a leader of anarchy. Yeah, he was a good. I'm, just for the record, I think the Heath Ledger Joker is the best of all of the Jokers it's so far. It's 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 so creepy and incredible. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with you. And it's funny because I thought that Jack Nicholson would never be like I when I heard that Heath Ledger was going to be Batman. I'm like, what is he crazy? Jack Nicholson, like you can't dethrone Jack yeah, Nicholson's right. Joker. That, oh, I thought the he same thing. Ass. He did. He, he made it. Made, he made Jack Nicholson's Joker look like a comic strip, like a Joker. Yeah, like yeah. a Joker. Made yeah. him look like Caesar Romero or whatever that other. Yeah. Right. Um. Yeah. See, I mean, that's I funny because this isn't where I thought you were going to take the J O Joker, J O Joseph Smith thing. I thought that you're going to take it to then. Oh, so that then, B Bruce, um, B R Bruce is B R Brigham, <laughs> or something like that. Batman Bruce Brigham. I would never ever defile the good holy name of Bruce Wayne with Brigham Young. No, yeah, I know. I know. That's Bruce, why I wanted to bring it up. Bruce Wayne is the 
he is the pillar of ethics and morals, you know? Really? And I, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking about this, you know, in, in all the conversations you and I have had, you know, we've, we've talked about justice yeah. and, and all that stuff. I think that's one of the unconscious reasons why I love the Batman stories. Yeah. Because he's a vigilante for justice. You know, yeah. he sees that there's wrongs being committed out there and he's not going to just sit by and let it happen. He's got to go and correct the wrongs. Yeah. Yeah. So. Makes sense to me. So all you got to do is be a millionaire and build a big cave under a waterfall or whatever and uh, get a really cool Batmobile and and an old butler that'll sit at your supercomputer and give you orders. Good that's times. It. That's the formula. Or Jeremy Irons, I guess he's not an older guy. He's a good. He's a good Alfred. Was was he the Ben Affleck Alfred? Yeah. Yeah. He's good. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, you're being too picky, man. Like they're all. I I've actually, aside from George Clooney, who I think is by far and away the worst Batman of all of them. <laughs> Because he like wiggles his head with every time he talks. Yeah, he's got like the, the little Clooney swagger. But he, but it's also because of the Joel Schumacher who put nipples yeah. on all the costumes. Oh my like, gosh! Why the hell would you do that? That was a bad. It was just bad. It was. And it was bad. such. A, it was such a waste of Tommy Lee Jones and I mean, oh Jim yeah, Carrey was good. Jim Carrey was. He good was. He oh, was. Wait, wait, Jim Carrey wasn't that one. Jim Carrey was. Uh, he was Riddler in the Val Kilmer. Batman. Val Kilmer. Yeah, the Val Kilmer one. Val Kilmer was okay. I I just remember being so disappointed after Michael Keaton because I thought Michael Keaton was really good. Yeah. Um, and then Val Kilmer just didn't quite get there. I thought he was okay. He was a passable Batman. But then George Clooney, yeah, he just flushed that sucker right down the toilet. But it wasn't really Clooney. Oh, that was fault. the one with Mr. Freeze with uh, Arnold and uh, Uma Thurman. And again, they're really good <laughs> actors. It's good talent. Clooney's yeah, good. Yeah. Schwarzenegger's good. Yeah. Uma Thurman's good. But yeah, the story. It, yeah, it, it, the filming, all of it was garbage. Yeah. Who was it that it was Chris O'Donnell played? Chris Ron O'Donnell. Ron. Yeah. <laughs> that was a terrible movie, man. Yeah. Terrible movie. Yeah, but but I have to admit, I'd want to go watch Dark Knight again. Yeah, we did that. You when did we came that already. Back watching Joker, yeah, we put on Dark Knight. The kids does watched it, it. Does it hold up? Yeah. Oh, totally. You know, the, the those, those Christopher Nolan ones. I, I think it's a little heavy emotionally with the soundtrack because what? most because most most movies pick and choose their moments where they're going to have the dramatic sound. Like these yeah. bat those Batman movies have it like going through the whole movie, like the do 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 do. And I'm like, okay, enough already. Like, really relax, yeah, because it 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 like makes makes me tense up. Like, okay, something's about to happen. Like, give me a break. Just give me a little bit of break. You use it judiciously, but no, they just huh. And the third one is the worst for that. Like that music never shows oh, up. The third one's worse for the music. Okay. Well, I, I, I mean, when it comes to d- overdoing the music, the third is the worst of those three, but there's other mm. reasons why the third one was not great. But. What? Yeah. Not I couldn't, great. I couldn't understand Bane at all. I couldn't understand anything he was saying. And I thought that the, I thought that the whole daughter of, Ra's al Ghul thing was eh, just, I don't it know. was good 
It was yeah. good, man. So you like you like the third one? I loved the third okay. one. Yeah. I mean, it, obviously, it goes it just Dark Knights. Dark Knights the for the best one. Yeah. Dark Knight Rises is a second, and then Batman Begins is the third. But I love oh, them really? all. Yeah. Oh, I think Batman Begins is better than the third one. Hmm. You're wrong, but yeah, I can appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, <clears throat> what I love about the third one is just the feeling of redemption and getting yourself back. You know, the, the obviously the scene where he's climbing, him, where he kind of rebuilds himself from the broken back and gets himself out of that pit. Mm. Like, I think about that that scene or that whole sequence a lot, especially really? when, I, when I'm exercising. I'm like, don't you give up, you piece of shit. Bruce Wayne never gave up. He got himself out of that pit to go fight Bane to save the world. Yeah. You know, I, I read a theory today that that was all inside of Joaquin Phoenix's imagination. <laughs> we are part yeah. of Joaquin's imagination right now. We are, yes. Cool. <laughs> all right. And any last cherries to throw on top of this one, Tom? No. I, well, all I would say is please go see this movie. It's yeah. really, really good. And but yeah, and I I'm going to be severely disappointed if awards aren't given to this movie, whether it's best picture, best actor, best yeah. director, best cinematography, or whatever. Yeah. They've got they've got it's got to win some awards. Yeah, I agree. It's good. So I'm hoping I'm hoping. Did you see the did Did you see the uh, the the Wolverine movie? I think it was called Logan, the last one that was just with him and Patrick Stewart. Uh, yeah, I did, and I yeah. really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was it was kind of like that, like it's not really a superhero movie, you it's know, not. like like I and and I, it just it's it's a drama that's a gritty drama, and explores some interesting issues. It's kind of dark, and it, but it's it does very dark superhero world, but without the the typical superhero spin on. I I like that. Yeah, I okay. do too. I think Deadpool's a little bit like that too, where it kind of like lampoons, but but it's it's. It's yeah. I wouldn't call it Deadpool a drama. It's a comedy, but yeah, very twisted comedy. But oh, yeah, it's awesome. It's I well, it's Deadpool. fun. It's Deadpool. fun, but it's not. <laughs> I walked out of Deadpool the first time I saw it in the theater. I don't know. You I had, some, I had a stick up out? my ass. Yeah, I had a stick up my ass. First first ten minutes, we walked out, and and then it took me like a year or two to to watch it <laughs> uh, again. And then I'm like, what was I thinking? That was awesome. And the second one was even better. The second, oh, Deadpool? Yeah. The second Deadpool is not as good as the first one. Not oh, I loved it. Cold, I, I loved that their little X-Force team or whatever it was. That was freaking hilarious. It's Yeah, it is funny. And, I, and I, Joker's girlfriend was one of them. She was the lucky one. Is that really her yeah. the same actress? Zazie Beetz. Is that, is that Domino? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was she, Domino, she was the one that was lucky, right? Yeah, and they're, they're like, luck isn't a superpower. Like, yes, it is. Wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, that was good. I mean, yeah. but I mean, Josh Brolin as Cable, yeah. so yeah. good. Yeah, and I love it when they call him Thanos. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I think I there's that. only I think there's only one scene at the end. But yeah. Oh, I I I loved it when uh, when Deadpool goes back in time and he shoots Ryan Reynolds as he's looking at the script of Green Lantern. You know, like. Oh, and that, that's good humor. I like it. Yeah, that was fun. I I agree. 
Remember, remember that one thing? That's awesome. <laughs> we just did an entire Chris Farley episode here without even yeah. meaning it. <laughs> That's still one of my favorites. Is it? Does he in one of the Chris Farley interviews Bruce Willis? Right. You remember that one part where Thank you me. didn't you didn't have shoes and you had to walk on glass? That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that part. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you liked it, and even if you walked out the second time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was more for Cammy than anything else. I, I didn't want. I knew she would not like her. Her mom was killed um, in a car crash when she was 16. Cammy was 16 years old. Her mom went to pick up the missionaries and bring them home for dinner, and they were hit by a drunk driver coming the other way. Oh my and so, gosh! So I'm like, eh, I don't think I want to, and and have her watch Joker smother his mom with a pillow. Wow. I, I think, I think we'll probably leave before that part. So. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I will say too, that when this movie was first being announced that it was coming out, I was really, really nervous that it was going to suck. Oh really? Yeah. I, I, re- I remember the, the news about it. I was excited. I was looking forward to it. I don't think it would suck. Hmm. But that's because yeah. I trust Joaquin. Yeah, well, I mean, he's still an actor. I mean, he's been in some so-so or poorly Wait, done. I'm going to rewind it because I think I, I think you started off this whole conversation by saying he hasn't been in anything. He bad. has. Okay, he hasn't. Well, he hasn't been bad. Like it, it, in movies oh, that I, I think. Story. Gotcha. Yeah. So like, if he is the one that can raise the bar for the entire movie. So yeah, but what I. And we never did discuss like all the controversy around this thing about well, how it was. Then let's discuss it. What I don't, I don't know anything about the controversy. How it was supposed to? Well, originally, there were cops that were called out because they were worried that this movie is going to incite violence. Coming off of the Dark Knight movies, remember the shooting with the Dark Knight? Oh, Rams? I do remember that. There was concern that there was going to be that this was going to, I don't know, uh, incite like copycats or people that were going to dress up like joker because that shooter i guess had kind of a joker look Mm. and uh and of course nothing happened and then the other controversy that actually led me down a little minor rabbit hole was the whole uh thought prior to the movie coming out that this was sort of uh was a call to incels have you ever heard of incels no yeah, I didn't either, but yeah, it's a thing. I guess there's a community of individuals uh, who call themselves incels. And incels essentially means involuntary, involuntarily celibate. Oh, yeah. No, I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about incels, yeah. Oh, really? I yeah, he, got, he got in trouble for saying something like diagnosing them, you know, because they couldn't get women or something. I don't remember. He, he, he talked with Joe Rogan about it on one of the podcasts I listened to. Oh, a while ago yeah so originally what i had heard is that this movie was supposed to be sort of a an incel tribute or it was going to be a call to the incels or something like that like you know these these lonely men who can't get a girl or whatever mm-hmm. and what whether it was going to be reflective of joker or joker's followers mm-hmm. because they were going to all these incels were going to rise up and riot and cause all this violence and blah 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 and of course you watch the movie and that's not the case at all. Yeah. It's more of a, 
well, I guess it would be more of a, a, a rage against the wealth inequality, I think. Yeah, right? wealth inequality and and just, just kind of like privilege in general yeah. that, that doesn't take care of the people around it. They turn a blind eye to people in need. Um, I think... And, and, and create more of the problem. Is, is real, that was the message of the movie. Yeah, I, I felt like when I kind of got a sense of where the focus was as far as the inequality or what was going on in Joker's mind about, especially since you had so much angst and anger towards Thomas Wayne was when he snuck into that theater and he's, and he's just looking around and he sees all the civility and all these people in suits or, you know, tuxes and whatever. And he's like, I mean, right outside these doors, yeah, right outside these doors, there are people, you know, suffering and whatever. Yeah. And that, that was, that was another one of, I, I, I caught it the second time. I, didn't, I don't think I caught it the first time that the reason that people were wearing the clown masks in protest was because of that comment that Thomas Wayne made about people that are like below the poverty line. They're all clowns. They're a bunch and that of really clowns. that pissed people off. And, yep. and Joaquin thought that the reason that they dressed up was because of him. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's kind of related because cause Thomas was responding to that murder on the subway but yeah because they were like three rich privileged kids that got killed and it kind of started the ball rolling yeah Yeah. that's the movie man yep there it is (laughs) hi this is hillary matthew ryan carol dashley and i like to play bingo online while listening to infants on thrones you can comment on this episode on the website infantsonthrones.com if you really like what you hear Give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Oh. Oh. You're still here, are you? You stuck around for the Easter egg? (laughs) Okay. An extended Easter egg today. I'm starting another podcast that I'll be doing in addition to Infants on Thrones and Mythologi, which I've started doing more episodes on Mythologi. So if you're interested in hearing short stories and myths... Uh, check out Mythologi. Um, but uh, I'm doing another one that's Mormon-related called Happy Ex-Mormon, and you'll be getting more information on this as it comes out. But uh, I've put out two episodes so far. The second one is as close to an Infants on Thrones general conference episode as you're going to get this year. <laughs> so, so those of you hoping for the parodies... Uh, you can go back and listen to the previous General Conference episodes. This is a little something different, and I'm going to play it for you right now. This one's going to be a challenge for me because, you know, it was General Conference this last weekend. crowning jewel of the Restoration is the Holy Temple. All right. Okay. Right off the bat, I recognize those little inner critical gremlins in here that are getting in the great and spacious building of my mind, pointing fingers and wanting to mock. But Do you have faith in and testimony of God, the Eternal Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost? Do you have a testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ and of his role as your Savior and Redeemer? Do you have a testimony of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you sustain the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as the prophet, seer, and revelator, and as the only person on earth authorized to exercise all priesthood keys? 
you sustain the members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators? Do you sustain other general authorities and local leaders of the Church? The Lord has said that all things are to be done in cleanliness before Him. Do you strive for moral cleanliness in your thoughts and behavior? Do you obey God's law of chastity? Do you follow the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ in your private and public behavior with members of your family and others? Do you support or promote any teachings, practices, or doctrine contrary to those of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Welcome back to the Happy Ex-Mormon Podcast, a.k.a. the Tao of Tao. This is episode two, and (laughs) this one's going to be a challenge for me because, uh, you know, it was General Conference this last weekend, and it's really easy for me to fall back into these old habits that I've developed over time of just being critical and nitpicking the things that were said that I don't like. And if I'm really going to be the happy ex-Mormon that I'm claiming that I want to be and I'm claiming that I am, then uh, I think I need to overcome the critical stuff. So that's going to be, but, 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 but overcome it while I'm still aware of it. But how do I do this? How do I do this? Like what I think that I want to do is look at the world through the eyes of source energy you know this idea that we are made up of source energy whether that's our atoms or quanta or you know whatever the energy is that makes up who we are it's eternal i mean neil degrasse tyson says we're all stardust neil degrasse tyson says that we are the universe contemplating itself it's not just the deepak chopra and the the woo new age that have this belief, although I love them all. (laughs) I love it all. So if I'm going to be, if I'm going to start seeing myself as source energy and start looking at the world the way that an intelligent, highly evolved, most, most evolved intelligent being in the universe would, would look at the world. It's all through love. It's seeing everything and loving it and appreciating it for what it is being grateful for it so this is my challenge today and I'm going to do what on Infants on Thrones used to be called a smackdown where uh, you may know that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints announced some changes to the Temple Recommend interview questions so we're going to listen to President Nelson announce these changes and the reasons for, and I'm going to give my happy ex-Mormon commentary on the changes, and I'm going to answer the Temple Recommend questions the way that I would answer it now as a happy ex-Mormon who is true to how he feels, is looking at the world from a place of love and gratitude and struggling to do so. (laughs) 
<laughs> but doing it, doing it to the best of my ability. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with President Nelson, and I'm just going to practice. I'm going to practice in front of you, and if I fall and scrape my knees as I do it, I hope it's at least good for a couple of laughs. So here is President Russell M. Nelson. The crowning jewel of the Restoration is the Holy Temple. All right. Okay. Right off. Right off the bat. I recognize those little inner critical gremlins in here that are getting in the great and spacious building of my mind, pointing fingers and wanting to mock. But let's start with this. One of the things that I really recognize about President Russell M. Nelson is how serious he takes his calling, how serious he, he approaches these things that he was raised, as was I, to believe that these things are true. And he has been faithful to those things and is a, a fantastic example of being faithful and magnifying the truthfulness of those things. He really believes it. He really, really believes it. And it shows. And it's an inspiration to people around him. So when he when he says that the crowning jewel of the restoration, I mean, I love the, I love the flowery language. The crowning jewel of the restoration is the holy temple. I, you know, that's not, for me, the crowning jewel of the restoration. To me, the crowning jewel of the restoration, and, and by the restoration we mean those, those things that were taught by Joseph Smith that then became codified and bureaucratized into a church. And it's interesting because the way that I look at early Mormonism and the way that I look at Joseph Smith now, I, I really see Joseph Smith in the same lines as a mystic, um, a psychic, an, an empath, um, someone who, especially the King Follett discourse, it's one of my favorite teachings of his. But I feel like he really took time to ponder the universe, to ponder existence. And he was hungry for information. And he, he went looking for information in all kinds of different places. And he had these great insights that really inspired a lot of people. And they formed a church around it. And in, in the early days, it was this message that you're not cut off from God. You don't have to go through organized religion because they're heart or their lips speak of me but their hearts are far from me wasn't that what he was told in the first vision the translation of the book of mormon and telling that story excited the hearts and minds of people who read it not because there were horses in <laughs> the americas in pre-columbian times um, but but because it meant that god was still talking to people it meant that there was more than just what they had been given in the Bible and we're kind of bored with and we're kind of confused by because what happens all the times with these messages is that they get locked into a conservative pattern for, for very good reasons, for reasons of love and reverence. But then there's really no way to go beyond and it and it's this conundrum that I came up against in the Mormon church a long time ago because I loved those messages of continued revelation. What is that article of faith? We believe all that has been revealed and that there will be a yet, yet many great things to be revealed. It's something like that. And yet because of the conservative nature 
of organizations like this when when they really they really do care about the salvation of the soul based on their understanding of what that is there's a lot of rigidity so that's a long way of saying <laughs> to me the crowning jewel of the restoration was this idea that we can have direct communication with God that we don't need to have an intermediary that we are children of God however you interpret that and as I answered the temple questions that are coming up, you'll get a sense more of what I mean by that. But so, right from the start, I think that Elder or President Nelson and I differ on what we think the crowning jewel of the Restoration is. But I also recognize that there is a lot of flowery hyperbole that goes into these addresses and, uh, you know, superlative disorder. Right, Bob? Back to Elder Nelson. An open house will be held prior to the dedication of each new and renovated temple. Many friends, not of our faith, will participate in tours of those temples. They will learn something about temple blessings. As members of the church, we need to be prepared to answer their questions. We can explain that the blessings of the temple are available to any and all people who will prepare themselves. Yeah, let's pause here. Um and talk a little bit about what the blessings of the temple are. The, the, temple, the temple is where the highest rituals and ordinances of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are performed. So you have marriage, that's probably the most common, uh, a marriage ceremony and, and what distinguishes a, a Mormon marriage from others is this idea of being sealed for time and all eternity. This idea that this couple that's getting married are binding themselves together so it's not till death do us part it's sealing for the eternities and this is um, this is something that's tied to the uh, promise that God gave to Abraham in the Old Testament the Abrahamic Covenant and so it's uh, it's something that's really available to everyone and it's solemnized in the temple and uh, what are some of the other blessings of the temple? It, it's mainly around sealing. There, there are children that can be sealed to families if there's adoptions or, uh, you know, of, of families coming together, stepchildren, that sort of thing. There are baptisms for the dead, which is a way to, I don't know, the, if, if someone dies and, and they weren't baptized and they're in spirit prison, then they can have their work done for them and the gates of spirit prison can be opened and they can be in paradise. It's a, it's a problematic idea that someone who wasn't tracted out by the Mormon missionaries in the world, that they die and they go to spirit prison until a Mormon does a, an ordinance by proxy in the temple. I don't think that many Mormons really take that literalistic interpretation of it because they kind of lean towards, at least I did, I, I leaned towards, well, God loves us and God won't punish people unfairly and so we don't really need to worry about it that much. But this is an ordinance that's done in the temple and it has to do with this, the sealing power. There's other, it, those, those are basically the blessings. It's, it's the ability to, to seal people together for all time and eternity. Now, if you go back to this idea that I spoke about earlier about all of us being source energy, what, what would that mean? If that were true, 
I mean, and it is true. <laughs> we're, we, are, we are all made up of source energy, whatever that is. The real question isn't, are we source energy? It's what is it? And is it intelligent in and of itself? That's my biggest question with it. And I think the answer is yes. And it's eternal and it's indestructible. And there's, there's this theoretical physicist named David Tong that I've talked about on podcasts before. He, he talks about quantum field theory where he says that every electron is part of a big sea, a big ocean of electron, <laughs> whatever, whatever that material is. It's a field. It, and, and what we see or detect as an electron is just kind of like, like if you've got bed sheets that kind of crumple up together, that where they crumple and they bundle up, that's this quantum of bundle of energy. That's what the electron is that we see. But it's actually every single connect, electron is connected to every other electron, whether it's in a person or in a desk, in an inanimate object, wherever it is, all things are connected. So all, all things are already sealed. And the way that I feel about the sealing ordinance is that this was one of those truths that Joseph Smith recognized and pondered and he was thinking what's a way that I can teach this to people so that they can recognize that we are all actually one that this idea of Zion of becoming one isn't a future goal it's how we are right now we are all connected right now how can I show them that well I could do this easy ordinance and follow you know rites of passage all around the world from time immemorial the crowning jewel of, of human culture are these rites of passage, right? That are able to transform someone's identity, their sense of personal identity, their sense of group identity. They'll be separated out. They'll go through some kind of a liminal phase where there's a transformation that happens and then they'll be reintroduced into society with a new identity. And it, it happens in marriage ceremonies, graduation ceremonies, uh, vision quests. Uh, there's, there's so many things that follow that, that model of a rite of passage. And so Joseph Smith created one. These baptisms for the dead, these sealing ceremonies, this idea that people who didn't recognize that they were already connected, they're already all one, that they would go through this ceremony at the end of it, they feel, okay, now we're all one. Okay, we, we did it. We fixed it. We taught it. But what happens is people get attached to the symbols. People get attached to the, the, the rituals, the practices. You know, they think that if a, a hair of your head floats up from the water, then the entire sealing or the, the baptismal uh, ceremony is going to be ineffective because there was a hair that came. You know, it's, it's little pharisaical, nitpicky things like that that is, is very much a part of human nature. And it's cute and lovable and adorable, but it diverts attention away from the actual message that we are all one. We already are all one. That's what I believe. And so the, these blessings in the temple that Elder Nelson is talking to, to these Mormons about is saying, your friends are going to have questions. They're, want, they're going to want to know, how can I have these blessings? How can I be sealed? How can I make sure that my family can be together forever too? Well, what I would say to them is, you already are. You don't, you don't need something else unless you need it to recognize that you already are. And this is already what you are. 
but again, another area where President Nelson and I diverge. Um, but let's go back. Let's hear what he has to say. But before they can enter a dedicated temple, they need to qualify. They need to qualify by the standards that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have set. But if you're looking at people through the eyes of Source, through the eyes of God, if, if we're talking about Source energy being born into a physical body, into this physical world that we're all a part of, what, what's the qualifying requirement there? Because whatever it is, every single person has already met it. Everyone who, who exists, everything that exists, has already met that qualifying standard from the position of God, from the position of nature, from the position of everything that is already. It's these human organizations, like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that build up these walls that keep others out and protect themselves in, but it's a, it's a construct. It's a symbol. And it's a symbol that has been confused, I believe, with, with reality, and it makes it too literal of an interpretation. Everybody is already qualified. Everybody is already worthy. Everybody is already sealed to each other. And the idea that some people are worthy and some people aren't, that was a problem for me. That was something that was inconsistent with what I was learning about the love of Jesus Christ and the atonement of Jesus Christ. So, let's go back. Let's go back to President Nelson. All requirements to enter the temple relate to personal holiness. To assess that readiness, each person who wants to enjoy the blessings of the temple will have two interviews. First, with a bishop, bishopric counselor, or branch president. Second, with a stake or a mission president or one of his counselors. You know, this, this reminds me Many years ago, it was probably, I don't know, we, you could look it up. It was when the San Diego Temple was being rededicated. I, I think, I think that's what it was. I think we were going to, driving to the San Diego Temple after it was, it was closed and it was reopened again. That's not that important of a detail. What, <laughs> what I'm remembering is a conversation that I had with my sister and my brother-in-law as we were driving there. I was already questioning a lot of things about the church. I was still attending. I was still faithful. Um, and and they, they were very much as well. They, they since have left the church. But at the time, I was working through this issue that I had with the idea of priesthood. And part of it, I, I had attended a workshop in Queens, New York at St. John's University. It was put on by Notre Dame and it was called Faith and Fiction. And it was a bunch of writers. And I was a folklore graduate student interested in writing. I was interested in maybe joining the, the BFA program at, at Notre Dame that was uh, sponsoring this 
retreat. It was two or three weeks. But I was the token Mormon in a group of Catholics, and mostly lapsed Catholics. And they were very interested in my Mormonism. <laughs> and there was one woman I remember from Canada who just couldn't stand me. She just couldn't look at me without this disdain. And whether she felt that towards me or not, I felt like that from her. And it had to do with priesthood. And it had to do with gender inequality. And this was years before the ordained women movement or anything like that. Uh, well, not anything like that. There was ERA that goes back uh, to the 70s. But, but I, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to respond to this derision that she had, that there was exclusion, that there was a, an imbalance of opportunity and an imbalance of importance that was based on gender in a very arbitrary and unfair way. And I didn't know what to do with that. And I struggled with it for a long time. And so th this conversation that I had with my sister and her brother came as a result of this, this really challenging interaction that I had with this woman at this faith and fiction retreat. So I was talking with my sister and brother-in-law, asking what, what is the point of the priesthood? What, why do we have it? What is it doing? What, why is it that God being an all-powerful God, God being an all-loving God, he can heal people when they're sick. Why does he need someone who has been ordained in the appropriate way to lay their hands on their head and to say a blessing? I didn't understand. It, it, was, it was starting to not make sense to me. I, I knew that it's what I had been taught was right, but I didn't know why, because it didn't make sense to some of these other things that I'd been taught. And I also knew that there were times earlier in the church when women did actually lay their hands upon the heads of, of men and other women and children and gave them blessings, but that we didn't do that today. And so I, I was asking this question, why do we have it? What, what does it do? And, and why is it that we feel like we have to be the catalyst that, that God's power is somehow dormant until it's activated by the laying on of hands of a priesthood holder. It, it didn't make any sense to me. And this was shocking to my sister and my brother-in-law. It was, it was blasphemy. But it's, it started, it, start, it, it, was, it was one of the things that started me down this path where I listen now to things that President Nelson is saying you're going to have two interviews. You're going to have one with the bishop and one with the stake president. Because we need things. These people, these leaders, these lay members of the church need something in order to feel like they're making a difference in the world. It's, it's their own validation. They need to feel important that they have a role. And they do have a role. And they are important. It's something that they create. And it's something that's sustained by all of the members who raise their hands and sustain and agree to this. Anyway, it just reminded me of that story and I thought I'd share it with you in my happy ex-Mormon way. In those interviews, several questions will be asked. Some of those questions have recently been edited for clarity. I would like to review them for you now. You know, it has been a really, really long time since I've sat down across from a bishop or a stake president and answered these 
temple questions, and that's even before they were edited for what they are now. So I'm really, I'm really looking forward to this. This is going to be fun. And I get to do it with President Nelson. That's awesome. All right. All right, President Nelson. Lay them on me. Let's see if I'm worthy or not. <laughs> Let's see. Do you have faith in and a testimony of God, the Eternal Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost? Yes. I can't, no, yes, yes, I totally do. I, I call them different names than, than that. And uh, mostly what I have faith and a testimony in, most strong of all, is the power that every single one of us has to turn our thoughts and beliefs into a reality in the way that we live our lives and in the, the rules that we follow. And um, there's so much tradition, so much tradition around God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost. In that tradition, those stories, of course I see them as fictions, but I believe that they're valid, worthwhile fictions. I have a testimony of the fictional nature, the value of these, these fictions, and the, the reality that comes from belief in these fictions and in following these fictions. And um, yeah, so I, I absolutely do. They're, they're real things. They are absolutely real fictions that have an impact on people's lives that is worth noting, is worth respecting, uh, it's worth learning about. It's, it's really important stuff. So yes, yes. I don't think that's gonna get me in the temple, but yes, yes I do. <laughs> Do you have a testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ and of his role as your savior and redeemer? Yeah, I do. The atonement of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about that. Here's, here's, here's how I see Jesus Christ. I see Jesus Christ, I, I see it as this incredibly powerful hero myth, this cultural hero myth that has shaped the lives of so many people. And there are messages, there's some conflicting messages, but most of the conflicting messages are the messages that are superimposed upon the story, upon the myth, from people, from leaders, from institutions. But the, the atonement tells you that there's forgiveness. There is eternal forgiveness for any and all sins. God's taken care of it. You don't have to worry. That's the good news. Fear not. Have faith. God's taken care of it. You don't have to worry. That's the good news. That's the atonement. God took upon himself all of the sins of the world. You're going to suffer. We all suffer. But the yoke of Christ is easy and his burden is light. And the real example of, of Jesus Christ isn't just the atonement, the taking on the sins of the world, but the messages of love, that the meek shall inherit the earth, the beatitudes, the love your neighbor as yourself. All of, all of these messages of love and acceptance and of oneness and the way that he thumbed his nose at the Pharisees, but said, fine, 
Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And, and I see Jesus as representing the idea that divine source energy manifests itself in flesh in each and every single one of us. That it's not just Jesus who is the Son of God, but it's every single one of us who are sons and daughters of God, creations of God. In fact, God incarnate in the flesh, not in any kind of egotistical way, but the same way that a tree is, the same way that the eraser on your pencil is, that it's all this divine God source energy with intelligence and purpose and intention. Oh, what is that purpose and intention? I think it's to experience the, the uniqueness of every choice that is made. But let's go back to your question. Do I believe in Jesus Christ and the atonement and that I'm saved through him? I, I believe in it as a story and I believe that I'm saved. I believe that that eternal part of myself is indestructible and also is unstainable. It's, it's worthy in and of itself. And there's nothing that I can do to mess that up. That's the message of the atonement as I interpret it. And yes, I believe that fully. Do you have a testimony of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah. And, and this is like one of the most, you know, what, what you mean when you're saying the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, you're talking about the Mormon church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints which has shaped and formed me in ways that I will forever be grateful for. And it, that, that includes all of the conflict that I've bumped up against. So yeah, I, I have a testimony in the truthfulness of that. I don't believe that, it's, that there's any exclusive truth to it. I believe there's unique truth to it, peculiar truth to it. And I'm not comfortable placing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints above any other groups or any other individuals and their truths. But I do have a testimony. I have great appreciation for it. And it's been, it's taken me a long time to get there with that. I've always had it a little bit. For, for people who have listened to me podcast for the last 10 years, you've probably heard glimmers of this in me. I, I do when I go back and I hear old things that I've said. But being able to get to a place where I actually feel it, and I'm not always there, but that's new. That's changing. That's, that's evolving. The, the testimony of the truthfulness of all things that I've experienced and the gratitude that goes along with that. Yes, I have that, President Nelson. Do you sustain the president of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as the prophet, seer, and revelator, and as the only person on earth authorized to exercise all priesthood keys. <laughs> you had me up until only. <laughs> and you had to emphasize only? No, I don't. I, I don't believe you're the only one who is authorized to exercise these keys, except by the rules that you've created and co-created, the rules that you inherited, the rules of the Mormon church, 
the rules of the Mormon church say, yes, you're the only one that has the authority and everybody else has to fall in line. It's not unlike <laughs> Milton's Paradise Lost when Lucifer found himself exhausted amidst all of these other fallen devils who have been fighting against God for so long. And in order for him to have any strength at all, he needed, he needed the collective strength of all of the fallen devils. And he kind of tricked them to give to him their power. That's kind of what's happening when you're saying that you're the only one to exercise the keys and the authority and whatever all that is. It's, it's the man-made institution of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I recognize it and I appreciate it and I respect it for what it is, but I'm, I, I made a decision a long time ago that I'm not going to acquiesce my power to you and I'll, I'll, take, I'll take what comes with it, the good and the bad. I will be responsible for my own actions, for my own exercising of my own power. And, uh, but, but what you said up to that point, sustaining, I would love to sustain you. I absolutely would love to. I, I don't think that the way that I view things would really be very appreciated or sustaining to you, but I'd like to give you that support. I'm going to try to do a better job of it to, to support those areas where I see you being absolutely true to yourself and those areas where I see you following the example of the Savior in love and those teachings of, of love and charity and kindness and inclusion, th those things I really value. And I want to do a better job of recognizing the similarities where you value those as well. Do you sustain the members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators? I sustain every single living human being as a prophet, seer, and revelator. I think everybody has, everybody is source energy. Everybody has that connection to that great eternal intelligence that sees. See, the way that I, the way that I see it is like, the cloud, you know, like the internet that we have, where there's this shared information, this shared, uh, you know, uh, Rupert Sheldrake has this theory called morphic resonance that I find really interesting, really compelling. I don't know that there's a lot of evidence, like a lot of solid evidence for it, but I find it compelling. Like where do instincts come from among humans and animals alike. It's very similar to Carl Jung's collective unconscious, but I think morphic resonance extends more to all of life, that, that we're all connected to this cloud of information. And that's what we're made of, that's what we are, this intelligent energy. I really like this idea. And so in that sense, I can say, sure, I'll, I can sustain the leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as being prophets, seers, and revelators, but I don't want to exclude anybody else from that. And I don't, I don't like it when I see the exercise of unrighteous dominion. But, sure, 
prophets, seers, and revelators. We all are. Do you sustain other general authorities and local leaders of the church? Yeah, but what, what, what do we mean by sustain? Because now I'm starting to worry that by sustain you mean defer. Do you defer to these people to make decisions for you in your life? Do you sacrifice your own ability to be a prophet, seer, and revelator, to have your own connection with the divine? Do you defer that to others that are leaders that are placed above you that we use words like stewardship? Do you defer to them? I don't. I don't defer to them. Do I sustain them as far as like reaching out and wanting to support them and encourage them and appreciate them and be grateful for them? Those things, yes, I can. But I can't, I can't defer to them. I can't, I can't say, well, here's the way that I see things and here's the way that you see things and you're my leader, so therefore uh, you're right and I'm wrong. And furthermore, I'm unworthy for thinking and feeling the way that I do. I can't go there. So if that's what you mean by sustain, then no. The Lord has said that all things are to be done in cleanliness before him. Do you strive for moral cleanliness in your thoughts and behavior? Wow, this is, this is a new one, this thing about cleanliness. It's kind of funny. It's, it's really, really funny. What does that mean? God, God in cleanliness, God in order. Uh, you know, I, I, I love spending time in nature. Nature's dirty, man. Na nature is, it's just, you know, there's dirt, there's insects, there's plants that grow wherever they want to grow. There's no, there's nobody there to like put them in neat little rows and pull out the weeds and, and only nurture certain things and, you know, kill others and say, well, this is in the service of God to make it clean uh, and sterile. <laughs> I don't. Uh, yeah, I, this is a weird one. I'm just going to say this is a weird one. This, this, is, this is a weird one. Do you obey God's law of chastity? I, I don't think that God has a law of chastity. I think that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has certain laws and rules, but I'm not going to confuse that with God's law. I think, I think if God had a law of chastity, it would be to love one another. I think that's God's law of chastity. To love one another, to not do harm, to not do hatred, in all of the different ways that that can be expressed. So if that's God's law of chastity, which is God's law of love, then I really do my best. But I do fall short quite often with my criticism, with my judgment, with my issues, with my cognitive distortions, my bad habits of thinking, my bad habits of focus. There's times where I let fear get in the way of love but I'm trying and I've touched it and I've felt it and I know what the love of God is in this sense so in that sense yeah but with what you're looking for 
No. Do you follow the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ in your private and public behavior with members of your family and others? No, not really. I, I, I kind of follow what's going on in the Mormon Church, and by follow I mean like stay aware of. Um, but not really. I've I've moved, I've moved quite beyond that. Um, so yeah, no, no, not really. Sorry. Do you support or promote any teachings, practices, or doctrine contrary to those of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? <laughs> yeah, but you know what? So do you. You know, so <laughs> there's so many contradictory teachings. You can't, you can't love, you can't say love one another and you sing that song, as I have loved you, love one another, and still be supporting these positions that are not loving and accepting of people so yeah we're 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 both we're both guilty here do you strive to keep the sabbath day holy both at home and at church attend your meetings prepare for and worthily partake of the sacrament and live your life in harmony with the laws and commandments of the gospel yeah i'm i'm not doing very well on this quiz anymore <laughs> on these, these questions. Uh, no, I, I don't. I, I don't treat the Sabbath day as any holier than any other day. Um, but, you know, and, and I don't take the sacrament and I don't go to church. I don't, no, I don't do any of those things. I, I do personal study and um, my own personal quest for spirituality and enlightenment, that I do. But uh, no, not, not this stuff that you're talking about. I don't, I don't fit the mold. I don't. Do you strive to be honest in all that you do? If I say yes, does that count? <laughs> do, you, do you strive to be honest in all that you do? There are times where I strive to not be honest. I'm just being honest about that. Are you a full tithe payer? What, did you say full or fool? Um, I'm neither anymore. Do you understand and obey the word of wisdom? I understand it, and I obey it in the way that it was originally given, where I use my own discretion. It should be called the word of discretion. I use my own wisdom, I use my own discretion on when and what I will put into my body but I do drink coffee so do you have any financial or other obligations to a former spouse or to children if yes are you current in meeting those obligations yay yay I can answer that one right yes I am I am current in fact I'm kind of over current but uh, we don't need to get into all that do you keep the covenants that you made in the temple including wearing the temple garment as instructed in the endowment? No. No, not, not the... No. No, I don't. Are there serious sins in your life that need to be resolved with priesthood authorities as part of your repentance? Once again, no. But thank you for the offer. Do you consider yourself worthy to enter the Lord's house 
and participate in temple ordinances? Absolutely. I consider myself worthy to live in God's house, which is the world that we live in, all of it, that we all exist in, that we're here, that we have entered, that we are going about our daily lives in. Am I worthy to be here? Yes. Are you? Absolutely. Everyone is. We all are. Individual worthiness requires a total conversion of mind and heart to be more like the Lord, to be an honest citizen, to be a better example, to be a holier person. I testify that such preparatory work brings innumerable blessings in this life and inconceivable blessings for the life to come, including the perpetuation of your family unit throughout all eternity in a state of never-ending happiness. And I want to bear my testimony to you, President Nelson, that those promises are already realized and that the very fact that we are here experiencing this mortal life is evidence that the eternal energies, <laughs> the internal source energy loves this, loves what it's doing. It loves being us. It loves playing this game. It loves this drama. It loves the contrast. It loves the ups and the downs, the horrific things as well as the wonderful things. It's all part of God's plan of happiness. And no one can stop it. No unhallowed hand, or hallowed hand for that matter. It's happening. And I do feel happiness. Not always. Not never-ending happiness. But I'm figuring, it out. I'm figuring out how to turn it around better when I get into those dark places. And a lot of those dark places, I'm sorry, are a result of being conditioned from my very earliest years that there are conditions for love, conditions for worth, conditions for acceptance. If you do X, Y, or Z, then you will get the blessings of God. I think it's, I think we already have them. I think they're already there. I think it's just a matter of opening up our eyes, softening our hearts, softening our egos, and just feeling what already is. And these things I say to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Tao, a.k.a. the Happy Ex-Mormon Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give the podcast a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes or on whatever podcasting service you use. Now, this episode that you're listening to is, as always, a labor of love, and creating it is, as always, my absolute joy and pleasure. Now, I do need to make a living, however, so if you find this podcast to be entertaining, thought-provoking, or valuable to you in any way, please flex your gratitude muscles by thanking me for my efforts with a direct donation in the amount of your choosing. Donation details can be found on my website, happyxmormon.com. I'm also currently becoming a certified holistic life coach under the tutelage and mentorship of Alan Cohen. And it would be my absolute pleasure to help coach you towards a greater self-directed sense of peace and fulfillment in your life. Let a master folklorist help you discover where you are in your own hero's journey and let me help you become more aware of the ways that you author your own life. 
If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, please visit the website happyxmormon.com and reach out. Special thanks to the brilliant musical artist Diderda for allowing the use of his amazing remix of the Beatles song Because. And an even more special thank you to each of you listeners for co-creating this work with me. If there are questions that you have about today's episode, comments that you have, or any areas where you want to challenge or push back, why not take a few minutes to record something on your phone in your own voice and email it to me. Include your name and your location, and I'll give you a shout-out, and I'll respond to you directly on the podcast. Details can be found at happyxmormon.com. It's my hope and prayer that you will find calm, peaceful shelter in the midst of all of life's storms. And, if possible, even enjoy the rolling sound of thunder as it pours. I was raised in a very heavy Judeo-Christian background and education, and I was programmed to believe uh, about God and about Jesus and salvation. And what were you programmed to believe? Uh, that uh, if you don't accept Christ as your Savior, there is no salvation in the next life. Well, now let's soften that so that it feels better to you. Okay. We were talking earlier about symbols, and someone was talking about the mantra of gum. And we say all religions and so many methodologies have found points of focus for you to focus upon. And we agree, people do sort of get carried away with the rhetoric. It's, it's true of every religion. Religions gravitate so far from where they started. But there isn't anything wrong with you identifying the essence of that and holding onto it. We see many, many people in many different religions closing their vibrational gap. In other words, their life is causing them to want and their religion causes them to believe. And so there is nothing wrong with religion and there is nothing wrong with that religion. But Guidance outside of you can never replace guidance within you. And in fact, if you are really listening to what Jesus and so many others had to say, that was their dominant message. That kingdom of heaven that you are seeking is within. Now, we don't know how they got to the place that they're at. In other words, we agree that there are a whole lot of people who profess that as their religion who are very far from being connected to source energy. You can tell that because they don't feel good. Anyone who is angry in their religion isn't living it. But we don't want you to describe yourself as a recovering. (laughs) Because it gave you a platform, it gave you a basis, it gave you a place to start, it gave you an opportunity, it gave you a good basis, you see. And now you're expanding from it, and that is good, and that is what all religions at the heart were teaching. It's an interesting thing to watch this movement of religions, because someone gets into a vibration where she can interpret from source, and then others hear it and like the sound of it and begin to write it down. And all of that is fine until they conclude that the religion can only go as far as those words were. When the whole point of an experience like this and everyone that was at the heart of every religion that you know of 
was interpreting in some way. In the early days of Esther and Jerry doing this work, they did a radio show in San Antonio. One woman was describing her uh, outrage at what she was hearing, and when she stopped, we said to her, and what is it that you use as your source of guidance? And she said, I use the Bible. And we said, we have heard that it is a very good book, which annoyed her. And then we said to her, and how is it that that book has come to be? And she said, it came from God. And we said, and in what way was it translated or interpreted? In other words, how did it get from God to paper? How did it get from God to words? Someone received it and interpreted it. And do you know that woman had never thought about that? She'd never thought about that. It had never occurred to her to think about that. All she knew for sure was that nobody ought to be now speaking from non-physical energy. Nobody ought to be professing that they speak from God because God stopped speaking the day that book was finished. <laughs> so now it turns out everybody's got a damn book and they're all professing that it's the book and then they kill each other because you've got the wrong book 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 and we say bury those books let them be you all have access to source energy and so if those books or any book inspires you to your understanding of who you really are an extension of that which man calls God and you let your life experience cause you to ask meaningful questions which source energy will answer every single time no exceptions and you can somehow get yourself into vibrational alignment with with that by working on your worthiness and working on your appreciation and working on your love and moving yourself up the emotional scale you'll get so tuned in with that energy that you will never again question who you are and those books while they may be delightful while they may inspire you in this way and this way will never replace your true connection to source